welcome to Coco Pods podcast. My name is Dr. Bola Sogade. I'm the host of this podcast. And this is a public education podcast in which we talk about women's health and especially minority women's health with an eye to maternity health. We look at the problems and how we can mitigate the problems and find solutions. Today, we're recording live from the United States Institute of Peace. And I am fortunate to have with me Dr. Wana Hutchinson Colas, MD, MBA. Dr. Hutchinson, good morning and welcome to Cocoa Pods podcast. Good morning and thank you for inviting me. This is a fabulous opportunity. Thank you. Dr. Hutchinson, I have to get something off my mind very quickly (laughs) (laughs) before we go into the podcast. I've known you for years. And in fact, you are one of my first mentors, my greatest mentors. You showed me how to perform my first cesarean section and you gave me the scalpel and walked me through how to do surgeries. And you took mentorship to the next level in that when we had our first daughter, you came to the hospital to visit me. I just had a baby and you came with gifts and with love. And I will forever cherish your mentorship. You took mentorship to a totally different level and you're still there for me. So I want to say, Dr. Hutchinson, thank you so very much for your mentorship, for the way you taught me surgery and you helped me become the surgeon that I am today. Thank you. Thank you for those kind comments. I know they're from the heart. I don't know what to say, but I feel humbled for that opportunity to have impacted your life in this way. Thank you. Thank you. By way of introduction, Dr. Hutchinson Colas is a urogynecologist who is fellowship trained and board certified in female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery. She is an associate professor and chief of the Division of Female Pelvic Medicine and Reconstructive Surgery at Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School. Her practice offers comprehensive evaluation and treatment of women with pelvic floor disorders, which include urinary incontinence, pelvic organ prolapse, pelvic and vaginal pain syndromes. She is a proud member of the New Jersey Medical Association and the National Medical Association, which is the professional organization that is the collective voice of African-American physicians and the leading force for parity and justice in medicine for the elimination of health disparities. Dr. Hutchinson Colas is an executive member of the New Jersey Black Women's Physician Association, a network of women physicians who are dedicated to advocacy and the elimination of healthcare disparities with communities of color and other vulnerable populations. Let's start from the very basics, Dr. Hutchinson. What is the pelvic floor? If you were going to talk to a lay person, what are the pelvic organs? And what is it to have support of the pelvic organs? Oh, what a great question. So the pelvic floor, let's think of 
a human that we are. And as we stand, the floor is technically the bottom. We walk on the floor, the bottom. So of the body, the pelvic floor is the distal most or the bottom part of the body. The legs connect to the bottom near the pelvic floor. So the pelvic floor in all humans is lined by a thin strip of muscles like a hammock that, and you think of a hammock that supports and holds things. Well, the organs that this hammock, the pelvic floor holds, includes the rectum, the vagina, the bladder, and the uterus. So this space is so important because as gravity human beings, human beings on two feet, this is an area that gets a lot of work. When you jump, when you walk, just simply stand. And it's often neglected, so to speak, are not thought of until it comes around to the time of childbirth or pregnancy even. And that is so important that you bring that up. After childbirth, especially after vaginal delivery, there could be some pelvic floor related injuries. What causes the pelvic floor issues that follow childbirth? And what kind of women are prone to having these pelvic floor disorders after giving birth to a baby? And what is the role, for instance, of someone that smokes and pelvic floor disorders? Wow. <laughs> A lot of questions, doctor. But let's start with what happens during childbirth. But even before childbirth, just being pregnant. Again, I painted a picture for you of what the pelvic floor is and the major work it provides in our daily lives. So much we don't even think about it. That's what being wonderfully made is. Mm. And with pregnancy, a developing fetus baby, as you look at a pregnant woman, this load grows and grows, and then it sits at the bottom of the abdomen, of the bottom of the body, the pelvic floor. So nine months or thereabouts, you have this extra weight and burden and pressure to this area. Remember, it's a thin strip of muscles like a hammock. And then you go through labor which causes forces to push this body through the pelvic bones and structures. Now, the pelvic bones, bones are finite. They don't stretch. And so the pelvic bones won't stretch, but they are ligaments that move and allow some of this movement to take place. Depending on the length of labor, the size of the baby, the type of vaginal deliveries that occur, there can be destruction, damage, stretching, tearing of these ligaments because the bones won't move, but the ligaments will. And the ligaments support bones and muscles and the pelvic floor is a muscle. So hopefully I have imparted to you the risks associated with just having the pelvis in that location that it was made to be in and having a baby passing through this space, something has to give. And the give is on ligaments and support structures and muscles. That's where the basic risk happens. Additionally, individuals have different risks that are conferred, that you have. For example, we are born with the tissue we have. We inherit that. 
each of us have different inheritance or mothers may have had prolapse and weak tissue. Some mothers don't. So individually, we come with different risks. Then you have other risks that put extra strain or force on the pelvic floor. For example, obesity. Obesity adds more weight. And where does that weight go? To the pelvic floor. There are other things such as constipation, chronic straining to evacuate or to have a bowel movement. Chronic straining and pushing does impact the pelvic floor. So when you add them up, if the same individual has poor risk factors regarding tissue quality, obesity, and now strain to evacuate bowels, you have additional factors. There are other social and environmental factors that can add to that, such as the type of work you do. We have to work. We all don't get to sit in a confined space. We have people whose natural jobs is to perform heavy lifting load. Then that adds to the pelvic floor. And some of that you can't change or modify, some you can. Smoking is another one that not just affects the pelvic floor, it affects all your tissue quality and ability to heal. So adding that to the other factors just, again, compounds the problem. Thank you. So almost one in 11 women experiences a urine control problem in their lifetime, yet few women seek treatment perhaps because they're embarrassed to talk about it or they think treatment won't make a difference. How do you help these women? And how can these women take control of their bodies without embarrassment or fear of judgment? Wow, your questions are so amazing. First, I think as an advocate for women, I must say that we as women educators as mothers need to impart knowledge and education to our girls. You're never too young to get the knowledge, right? So understanding the dynamics that I just talked about, you can see that early you can teach women to avoid some of the things that we talked about, constipation in children. Children don't really talk about it. If the parent isn't astute, they won't know. However, let's get back to urinary leakage. It is not customary that mothers tell their daughters or it's talked about that it's not normal. There's a myth that leaking comes with aging and women just don't complain about it. So when you go in the supermarket and you look at the pads aisle, there are lots of absorbent products there that's provided by industry. So you can silently buy it and manage your leakage. Well, good news is that there are things we can do about it to modify. We can do education in managing the symptoms, education in treatment, and education in prevention. And so we need to be advocates for women, serious advocates, advocate from youth, that pelvic floor exercise is something that's not dirty. It's not for any other purpose, but to prepare those muscles for life's management as human beings on two feet with managing abnormal urinary behavior and bowel behavior. Those are some of the things that are helpful. We can't avoid the fact that women want to bear children. That's our life's work as well. And so 
that can be limited or some of the damages can be eliminated by really education, advocacy, making sure individuals understand that treatments are available and it's not necessarily surgical, but just guiding a woman in how to best approach even lifestyle changes can be so impactful, but you have to tell someone. And unfortunately, some of our medical colleagues fail us because they don't have the time to bring it up in a primary care visit or in a well woman's visit. I often joke with my learners that if I was to practice primary care, that first well woman visit that should come up. Don't forget to start protecting and training your pelvic floor for the future. Because when I have an 88 year old to teach her that, it's a lot harder than if I taught her in her youth. Thank you so much. You know, some other women struggle with pelvic symptoms such as frequent urination, a strong urge to urinate, burning while urinating, feeling like the bladder hasn't fully emptied after urinating. How do we separate out the different symptoms and assign different diagnoses to what women are feeling? Oh, well, that's why you have urogynecologists in that space with the training and experience and expertise to tease those things out. And all those symptoms you talk about can allude to specific diagnoses and treatment. So for example, burning with urination most commonly is related to a urinary tract infection. However, it can be related to skin disorder of the vulva. The urine touches that area and it burns. And I would have to have the savvy to try and extract or encourage my patients to tease it out for me. Is it during urination or is it just after Or is it when the urine touches your skin? Because the average individual just say it's burning. But then when I go and examine and I put the things my patients tell me together with what I'm seeing, I can help to say, uh, maybe I need to treat the skin. Maybe I need to give you an antibiotic because I tested your urine and there's evidence of an infection. Other things such as the feeling of incomplete bladder emptying. That's a common, common feeling with bladder dysfunction, but indeed you may not be emptying. So seeing a urogynecologist or pelvic specialist or just someone interested in that area can tease that out. If it's because of overactive bladder symptoms, which that's one of the most common symptoms associated with overactive bladder, the feeling of incomplete bladder emptying versus truly not emptying, I can check the bladder to see if there's a residual urine amount that's abnormal. Something as simple as that could be a clue to a bigger problem, spine disease, okay, MS, multiple sclerosis. So these symptoms should not be taken lightly. You should be encouraged to go and seek some help, tell somebody who has the ability and the training to guide you and assist you with the diagnosis and treatment. Urgency frequency. Another common, common, common symptoms. So rather than tell somebody woman would wear a pad, so, you know, I'm not going to make it. So let me just protect myself so I don't smell of urine. Well, urgency frequency could be a sign of infection, something that simple to treat. Again, it could be neurologically related. It could be just, I need to guide you with what you're drinking. Too much coffee, 
too many bladder irritants, acidic beverages and food, smoking, so many other things that you and I, even anyone can address if we know. And so education is key. And I'm happy to partner with my colleagues, my patients, so that they can get the best of these evaluation and treatment and be the best selves. Aging does not mean you have to be wedding and wearing poise or a diaper. And now that you talked about aging, some older women may feel a heaviness or a bulge in the vagina. And, you know, like you said, even a primary care healthcare provider could notice that on examination, even if the patient does not complain about it. How do you label that sensation of feeling heaviness or bulge in the vagina, especially in an older woman? Again, age confers a greater risk for what we call prolapse. Prolapse, some women call it descent or descenso, but oftentimes the person is telling you, I have a bulge. And I become a little more investigative. Uh, what, what does it look like? Have you ever checked it? When does it occur? Commonly with a bulge, that's prolapse. It gets worse with the end of the day because we're gravity human beings. So when we stand, anything that will fall will rest at the bottom. So clues like that already tell me that, okay, maybe when I look, I'll know what I'll find. Once in a while, I'm surprised and there's no bulge that's outside, but there's a bulge inside or low in the vagina, or it could be just a sensation again, related to neurologic disorders. However, most of the times a bulge is the most specific symptom that's associated with prolapse. I often ask my patients to tell me what does it feel like by food? You know, gynecologists, we like food for whatever reason or fruit. So is it the size of a, an apple? Is it the size of an egg? Is it the size of a plum? Is it the size of even a grape? And then you start putting it together. And when you examine, again, examination will confirm your findings. And then I can prescribe or suggest a reasonable solution tailored to that woman's needs and desires. Wow. And you know, when a woman has this prolapse, like you kind of alluded to, different parts of even the spaces in the vagina can prolapse. Is that right? It could be the That's head, head of the neck of the bladder. Could you just tell us, even though the vagina looks like a small space, there are different kinds of prolapse. Can you tell us about the different kinds? And even Absolutely. after a woman has had a hysterectomy, she could still have a prolapse. That's correct. So again, let's just go back to, I, I keep reminding you about some of the normal things, you know, the ligaments stretch and tear off from its support structure. Muscles can stretch and skin will stretch indefinitely. The vagina itself is like skin, right? So it will stretch indefinitely if the right pressure is applied over time. Okay. So putting that together, the top of the vagina, and when we say top, think of someone standing. So the top would be the higher part where the cervix would be, 
That's the top. So if the uterus and cervix is prolapsing, it's the top and more like the middle of the vagina that's coming down. And that can come down and out through the opening of the vagina so that the parts look different than what it originally was. Then there's the anterior or the front part of the vagina where the bladder is. So think of the bladder that rests on the vagina, which is the top wall or the front wall of the vagina. That can bulge again separately. Oftentimes it involves all of the areas. However, there's one part that typically worse than others. And so if it's the front part of the vagina that's worse, that's the bladder, that also can bulge in and out of the opening of the vagina. The back part is where the rectum is. So you have the rectum with the vagina over it. And with the vagina over it, that can also bulge into the vagina and out of the vagina. And that's a rectocele. So we have other lay terms for that. The anterior bulge behind the bladder, we call that the cystocele. The posterior bulge in front of the rectum is called a rectocele. And the middle bulge with the uterus is called uterine prolapse. Many times, depending on the severity of the prolapse, all three will come out at the same time. Now, if a woman has had a hysterectomy, technically, what bulges? They could have, I guess, like an apical prolapse. Can you describe that? Because, you know, a woman gets a hysterectomy and maybe certain other techniques were not applied by the OBGYN that did the hysterectomy. And also because of patient factors, you know, they're getting older or they smoke. They now start having prolapse, even though they've had a hysterectomy. Can you explain that to us? Okay. This is good knowledge for you and any individual that's watching should benefit from this question. So removing the uterus leaves vagina, which remember we talked about skin will stretch indefinitely with the right pressure applied. If after hysterectomy, the ligaments are not attached to the vagina, prolapse is for sure. So remember, ligaments and bones are the strongest things we have in our bodies. And anything you want to support has to go to ligament or bone. And so attaching those ligaments at the time of a hysterectomy or preserving those ligaments at the time of hysterectomy will decrease the risk of prolapse. Of course, again, we can change our genetics and we can change the fact that we're in two feet. So the vaginal vault, as we call it, which is just mostly skin once the uterus is removed, can prolapse with the right pressure, straining, obesity, chronic lung disease, constipation will increase those risks of vault prolapse. And, you know, you talked about some diet things in, in the past. I mean, so could changes in the diet, really lifestyle changes, limiting excessive fluid intake for urinary incontinence, more fiber for constipation, weight loss for just sheer pressure. What are the things that a woman can do, especially women in low resource settings? What can they do to help their bodies so that they're not more prone to some of these conditions? Great question, doctor. Thank you. First thing is looking for prevention. And you're there. First line therapy is lifestyle modification. 
first thing, and I tell my patients that too, lifestyle modification. So how do you modify your lifestyle? Mm -hmm. If you're overweight or obese, that's one of the first things you need to do. Remove some of that pressure from the pelvic floor. And we go through, I do spend some time talking about, because it's not easy, weight loss is not easy. And that requires a lot of changes in your home, little tricks as to just don't buy that, stay as natural as you can with your eating habits. I promise the weight will adjust depending on what we eat. Then you go on to fluid management, beverages, you need to give up caffeinated beverages. Caffeine is going to pull water out. So you're going to urinate more frequency. Water is the best beverage. It's the best beverage for the kidneys, but it's the best beverage for the bladder because we are what we eat. All the food we eat is excreted. It leaves our body in the urine and in the stool. In the urine, if you accumulate those things that irritate the bladder, then you're going to want to urinate more. The bladder is saying, get rid of this, and you have urgency. However, if you drink water and can dilute some of those bad substances, you may have less urgency, but you may still urinate more because you're delivering more water, more fluid to the body that's excreted through the bladder. That's still very important. Certain common beverages, Coca-Cola is caffeine. People just love that Coca-Cola. Well, any caffeinated beverages can cause bladder irritation. Carbonated beverages, sodas, any type of bubblies can cause bladder irritation. For the right person or the wrong person, acidic foods or beverages such as too much orange juice. Yes, too much orange juice can do it. So water is your best beverage. Vinegar products irritate the bladder. Certain types of cheese alcoholic beverages. There are so many things that can irritate the bladder and make it worse for the, the right patient at the right time or the wrong patient at the wrong time. So we need to individualize these prescriptives after particularly knowing your patient. But in general, water is your best beverage. Weight loss is a very important thing for my community and for me. And decrease the weight on the pelvic floor. Smoking is huge. Bladder irritation and cig tobacco use and now vaping is just shouldn't be said in the same sentence because those are clear bladder irritants. Constipation. How do we manage constipation? My algorithm is very simple, actually. High fiber diet, a fiber supplement, a magnesium supplement, and water. That's, and I can't tell you how many times my patients say, doctor, that works. Even those who have been on medications that colorectal or gastroenterologists prescribe. High fiber diet, a fiber supplement, water, and a little magnesium. Now, people don't talk about magnesium much, but trust me, magnesium helps all muscle. Your intestine is a small muscle, a big, small muscle. So you move things along, not just eating it, but you want to help it to move along that helps. Water helps to maintain that bulk and consistency. But a fiber supplement, as you age, you require more fiber. A woman of my age, don't ask me how old, but a woman of my age requires about 35 grams per day. To eat 35 grams per day, I would be chewing forever. So a simple teaspoon of psyllium, which is just fiber, tree bark, 
is helpful. In water, you knock it back before a meal and you're good to go. You at least will get six grams out of one teaspoon. That's a great start, right? Vary the fiber, add a fiber supplement. And if you have a problem with evacuation, that's a must. With enough water, you're going to be so happy with that evacuation. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, what, what kind of foods are rich in magnesium? I mean, if we, we are there some foods that we can get out there that... Oh, um, uh, doctor, <laughs> <laughs> you're a tough one. You're going to have to have it. The first thing that comes to my mind and my favorite vegetable is yeah. broccoli. Yeah, you know, yes, don't yes, think yes. of broccoli. But well, why yes. I don't necessarily go to the food because, again, if you're having a fiber-rich diet, you are going to get magnesium in your diet. To make most of us do not get enough magnesium. Let's be true. And so, yes. a small dose, and I think of 250 milligrams, which is in many vitamins, by the way, and it's cheap and it's over the counter and it, you can create a habit of just taking one before bedtime. It also helps with sleep. So there, and people who have wow. cramps at night as we get older. So one 250 milligrams daily won't hurt you. It's just a great addition, I find, that's helpful to my bowel regimen as well. And, and that's magnesium, about 250 milligrams a day, right? Yes, ma'am. Yes, thank yes, you. Yes, doctor. <laughs> <laughs>